Hey, it's Vadim. I want to remind you guys to check out my free DIY recording ebook. Just go to howtorecordyourband.com. If you've listened to the first couple of episodes of this podcast and thought, hey, that's information I'd like to have handy. Uh, the ebook has that and more. It's over 70 pages of information designed to either help you get started with recording or take your DIY recordings to the next level. Today's episode features James Cross of the Better Band Bureau. James is creating a really unique resource designed to help bands and artists treat their craft more like a business. This is something you may not have thought about. As James mentions early on, it may not be right for you at this stage in your career or your band's career. But while you may not be doing music for the riches <laughs> that that come with it, it's really not about that. It's really about sustainability. It's, a, right, it's about how you spend your time and can you get by paying your bills while doing what you love. Not everybody's going to become Jack White or Beyonce, but there's this concept called the long tail, which refers to the thousands of independent artists out there that make a living year after year and can do this for many years because they've taken control of the business aspect of their band. They understand their revenue, they understand their expenses, they understand how to use technology to their advantage in creative ways. This is what James is talking about. This is a really information-dense episode. You'll see that James throws down a lot of knowledge, and I'm glad I got to listen to it a second time while editing it because there's really a lot here to pick up. Whether this is something you've considered or not, I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I hope you enjoy it. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm your host, Vadim Karaz from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Benjamin Hall with DreamLoud Studio. I'm excited for our conversation today. We have a special guest with us. We have James Cross from the Better Band Bureau. And we're going to be talking about how and why you should treat your band and your craft as a business, which is something that maybe is not so sexy to think about at first when you pick up a guitar and you start playing and you're like, this is cool. I can maybe get girls this way or something. <laughs> I'm going to write some songs. <laughs> you probably don't think then about things like accounting and what are my revenue streams going to be, but it's super important if you want to do this in the long, in the long haul. So without further ado, James Cross, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vadim. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. And, you know, I, I love what you said about uh, getting girls with playing guitar, <laughs> but just going right into it off of that, you know what girls also like? Guys who aren't broke. <laughs> that's perfect. That's just great segue. Mic drop right there. That's it, man. Yeah, that is that's mic drop. For, that's gonna be the uh, the uh, the social media clip right there. That's it. I found out the hard way. See, being a good bass player gets you into a lot of like good gigs and touring, but you don't get girls at shows. You get other dudes asking what your gear is. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's girls only come after the revenue part. So. So it's important. <laughs> yeah. So James, we invited you on to talk about this this kind of the business aspect of bands, but I want to start with just having you give us some of your background. Uh, we know also that you do have some studio background as well, so feel free to go in as much or as little detail as you want on 
kind of your history growing up with music, how you got into this game and uh, what you're doing today. Yeah. So long story short, uh, I just grew up immersed in music, stuff like Randy Newman, Sinead O'Connor, musicals like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Style Express, just a little of everything. And uh, fast forward to, I guess I was about 15 and I'd been listening. And I'd been listening to, you know, alternative rock radio for like four or five years at that point. And uh, I started playing Guitar Hero at a friend's place and got really into AFI. Miss Murder was on Guitar Hero 3. And so picked up, um, I Heard a Voice, which was their live album, and just fell in love with that album. And I was like, whoa, I recognize a lot of these songs from the radio. And uh, about a year later, started interning at a radio station uh, around here called WGDR Plainfields, just a small local community station. And from there was presented with just crazy opportunities. Like I flew across the country when I was 16 to actually interview AFI at one of their basically hometown shows. No way. And it was a total blast and it was crazy. And I, like, I was so lucky to do it and ended up... Um, like running an AFI fan site with some friends that years down the road, uh, right before I left the site, ended up merging with AFI's official website. So like my friends wow. are now posting blog posts for AFI on their official website. And that just was one of the many aspects of the industry that I got involved with was being tight with AFI's management. But also my dream from when I was like 17 or 18 was to be a tour manager who does front of house for club bands. Mm. And that was very specific. Cause if you go <laughs> higher than that to like the arena amphitheater level, you can't tour manage and do sound. Like those are absolutely going to be separate. But when yeah. you're doing like medium to large clubs, there's a lot of bands where the tour manager is also the front of house guy. So it's like, huh. I, I can do that. I can manage that. Like I want to do that. That didn't end up happening. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if that did, because I'd be out of a job freaking out with all the stuff going on right now. True. Right. Thankfully, I'm not. I'm sitting here talking to you guys, and uh, for right now, at least, still doing well. Um, and, and I hope you guys are, too. Like, I know times are tough for everyone, and yeah. you know that goes for you, too, as well as all the listeners. So when I was 18, I ended up going into college at Bay State in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Not a state school, even though it's in the name, and studied audio production and entertainment management. For anyone listening, don't go study audio production. <laughs> the classes there, I had, I had fun in the classes. The theory classes were great, and I learned a lot. The practical hands-on classes, most of the other kids just held me back. It was terrible. Mm. I learned more on YouTube and all that kind of stuff than I did there. Did you already have some, some experience going into that? Just a little bit from the radio station. Um, okay. I, uh, we did some live performances for the radio, so I had like a Mackie 24-channel mixer over at the radio station with no outboard gear, just the built-in parametric EQ, and uh, the station manager who told me that I should use gain to adjust levels, not the faders. So mm, nice. quickly <laughs> unlearned those habits when I got to school. So I guess that was one useful thing I learned. Yeah. But what I did love about being in school was the entertainment management classes. Like, I fell in love with that. Mm. No surprise, since I wanted to be a tour manager anyway. Uh, spent four years there, was the production manager of our school venue for two of those years, did live sound the other two years, all that kind of stuff. And then 
the summer before my senior year ended up going out on Warp Tour with one of the sponsors on the tour, wow. which had been like my dream. Here I am, 21-year-old yeah. kid, getting on a tour bus for the first time. I'm just like, it's awesome. I'm getting paid to travel across the country. Like, it's happening. <laughs> I could do this, yeah. you know? And so uh, did parts of three summers on the Warp Tour and some other tours in between doing merchandise, driving through bands. Uh, I tour managed a friend's band for their regional tour, just hopping around, doing as much as I could, really. And then uh, in 2016, ended up basically leaving the music industry for about two years because I got a good job offer that paid well in a wonderful city, San Diego. Mm. And about a year into that, ended up interning at Signature Sound Studios in San Diego. And it was awesome. I'm like, yep, I can't do like this job for the rest of my life. I have to get back into music. So that's how I got back into music. and you know, started working with bands again. And this all came around to the Better Band Bureau because I had so many friends asking me like, hey, James, how do I do this? How do I do that? I'm like, you know what? Rather than talking to every single person individually, why don't I just talk about it on a podcast and in a Facebook group so everybody can learn? And that way, even if they don't have a burning question, they might hear something and think, oh, dude, I never thought of that. I should do that. And so that gets us to where we are now, essentially. Right on. Yeah, you're making some some really useful, practical content. Again, it's something that I think a lot of musicians don't think about, and they should. So let's let's start there, maybe. So let's say I'm a musician. You know, why should I care about treating my band as a business? Well, I'm going to throw a twist in there and say not every musician should care. Okay. Some musicians who just play as a hobby, just want to play locally, it's not really going to matter that much. You know, you're probably not going to earn much if you just love to play music and that's what you want to do is just play music for your friends, you know, at the local coffee shop or the local bar. That's totally fine. There's nothing at all wrong with that. But if you have bigger aspirations to hit the road for more than, you know, a weekend tour or release an album that thousands of people are going to hear, you have to have a plan in place for everything you do and that's part of running a business. And if you're going to be running a business, you might as well do it right and figure out what business structure you want for your band, how you're going to monetize things, and really just how you're going to stay afloat as a business. Because fun fact, the IRS, if you don't make money for three years on a business, will classify you as a hobby. So if you lose mm. money three years in a row as a musician, you're not a professional musician. The IRS will <laughs> literally call you out and say, no, it's a hobby. Wow. So, yeah, so that's the long story short. Not everyone has to take it seriously, but if you want to take it seriously, you better do things right or you get called out by Uncle Sam. <laughs> good, good advice. <laughs> yeah, there's no no uh no wake-up call like the IRS calling BS on your uh on your life dream, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I've seen bands who Yeah, you know what? Let me take for example one of the friends I tour managed and this is just for a weekender tour. And uh, long story short, their bass player joined the National Guard and went to basic training. So they asked me to fill it on bass. And I was like, yeah, sure. But on the condition that you also let me tour manage you guys so you can see like what you should be doing, because I knew they hadn't been doing any of that. At the end of this like four-date tour, I pulled up my spreadsheet and went through the numbers. And was like, okay, so uh, we actually, we earned money. We earned like... 
$217. And, you know, these were our expenses. So after the expenses, it was this. And this was literally just helping them out. We didn't get paid out for food or anything. It was basically just a vacation for me. Mm -hmm. And they were just mind blown. Like, whoa, we made money. Like, we would have had no idea about that if we didn't have you here. I'm like, well, you would if you had a spreadsheet. I can send you the spreadsheet (laughs) for the next tour. And uh, some bands just don't do that. They don't like numbers and they don't necessarily care, which is fine because musicians are creative people Mm. and not everyone's going to care. But for most bands that have four or five members, there's going to be at least one person who is capable, willing, and in fact eager to do the numbers and make sure that everything is going as it should. And if you're earning money, split evenly or to whatever extent that the band has decided. I mean, a lot of bands split things evenly, some don't. It really depends on what the deal is. Which, quick side note, if you're in a band, you're not a sole proprietorship, you're a partnership. Mm. And that means you should have a partnership agreement so everybody knows going in what happens if one person leaves or if multiple people leave, who owns the rights to the band, you know, like Hmm. what does it take to kick out a member if it comes to that? You know, do you need to have, like if it's a five-member band, at least three people say, yes, we want them out. Does it have to be unanimous? Aside from the person getting kicked out, obviously, (laughs) they're probably not going to vote for that. But you get where I'm going. You have to have these policies and thoughts in place because otherwise years down the road it could come to back uh it could come and backfire that's super interesting you know i never i never even thought about that and ben i want to know what you think because you've been and still are in a bunch of bands Mm -hmm. but just just first james quickly what does that look like what does a partnership agreement look like it really depends on in on how much into detail you want to go with it i personally recommend If you want to make this a career, have a lawyer drafted up Mm. and not just any lawyer, a lawyer who knows band partnership agreements. Uh, We're actually going to have one on the Better Band Bureau podcast in the future. Uh, She's great, but it's been a little delayed with all the COVID stuff. Yeah, Uh, But she's going to talk about partnership agreements, different structures that bands could have. And, uh, you know, even if the band isn't a partnership, if you're an LLC or a corporation, you should still have that partnership agreement in place. So, you know what's what um but yeah it it really depends on how how much detail you want to put into it and the partnership agreement could literally be you know what the lead singer is the sole songwriter and they own the band and everyone else is just basically a silent investor who gets a share of the profits Mm. to each one of us uh splits the income evenly and we're all co-owners and blah 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 it there's just so many w- different ways it could go. Yeah, Ben, what's what's been your experience from the bands you've been in? So the first serious band I was ever in was right out of college. And um, kind of like James was talking about, uh, our band leader was the vocalist and guitar player. And he, he went to Berklee School of Music to study music business. So he was already on the fast track to all of this stuff mm. that you're talking about, James. And one of the first things he did was write up a band kind of, marketing not a marketing document but like a like a big business plan of how we're gonna uh, how we're gonna do things and uh we agreed to make uh the band a three-way split because there were three of us members in there but then he took an extra five percent of the band so that he had a little bit more because it kind of was his his baby and his project and we all agreed that like yeah you should own a little bit more than the rest of us but we just decided to split 
any revenue that we made from the band just from there, regardless of whether I wrote most of one song or somebody else wrote more of another song. So mm. that was the first thing I saw uh, going all the way to whenever I played with some bigger groups. And uh, in those situations, it was more like a sole proprietorship where we were just hired guns. And there were also some some other provisions in there. If we were to co-write a song, then um, the band owner, they would take the majority of the profit, but we could also grab some uh, streaming royalties and uh, CD sale type of things all the way to now I play in a couple local bands as well. And those are just kind of spoken understandings. We haven't got to the point yet where we've drafted up anything professional. I just understand that, or we collectively as a band understand that, all right, this guy is our band leader. We haven't drafted up anything documented wise, but we always go to him to ask, Hey, is this okay? He gets the last word on things essentially. Right. So I think it's okay to have every, you know, everything along the way there um, and to not have anything legally drafted up at least at the beginning. Cause it can be kind of, uh, and I want to get your thoughts on this James too. Like, when when do you make that step to like kind of bring in a lawyer and, and do all the things professionally? Because it can be kind of weird to go and ask your friends, hey, do you want to start a band? By the way, here's some papers. I need you to sign. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. Like, when's the right time? Or maybe even a better question is like, when's the wrong time to, <laughs> to start thinking about that? The wrong time is when it's too late because you've been <laughs> offered some kind of contract from anyone, really. You know, mm. um, having it in place as soon as possible, as soon as you recognize that everyone in the band wants to take it seriously is a great time to do that. For example, if you guys are talking about doing a two-week tour or something, that's probably a good indicator that everyone in the band is at least somewhat serious. You say, okay, you know what? We're going to either make money or most likely lose money on this tour. We need to have an agreement in place. We need to track finances for every single person for what they pay in and what they take out so that way we know who basically if somebody makes a larger investment than somebody else they're going to get that investment back before we split the profits so that's really right. important and that's one of the easiest ways to you know break up a band is you know bass player pays in 200 guitarist pays in 300 drummer pays in 10 and then at the end of the tour, the drummer's like, yeah, so uh, where's my third? And they're like, well, dude, we paid in 500 together. You paid 10. Like, we're paying ourselves back. Here's your right. 10 bucks. But we're not paid back yet. And he goes, but you each got 100 bucks. It's like, well, yeah, because that's less than we paid in. You got in your whole amount. Like, we lost money. You broke even. You're, you're good. And the drummer rage quits. So... Yeah, That's freaking. the kind of stuff that you want to have policies in place, even if it's not something legally binding, at least something like, here are the numbers, track in your accounting software, whatever, you, whatever it is you want to use, and make sure that everybody knows how much has been paid in by every member, and there's a paper trail of every. That's it's really funny that you said drummers because we all I feel like we always rag on drummers on this show so this, this, <laughs> this goes goes right in line with that freaking drummers. Um, so let's let's get into some of this. This is something I'm actually very curious about. It's been years and years since I've been in a band and I've never been in a band that's that's taken it seriously enough to care about this. But what what are some of the revenue streams for a band in 2020? 
How do bands make money? Well, I got to ask, first two months of 2020 or the rest of 2020? Right, right, right. Yeah. Let's, I do want to get into the COVID stuff uh, as well. Ben and I have been talking about that. But let's start with regular times, first two months. Pretty much touring is still the biggest income for many artists, which is ironic because for smaller artists, it's also the worst source of income. Hmm. You know, you can be playing a big tour and uh, this is something my co-host on my podcast, Matt, has said. They were playing a show where their payout was supposed to be, I think, like $100. And the headliner was getting 3000 And the promoter came up to them and said, hey, I couldn't pay you your 100 bucks because the headliner got 3000 <laughs> And so Matt, his uh, guitarist, Jesse, is basically their tour manager. And they learned from that. You know, they, that happened once. And the next time they went back, said, you're going to pay us up front. Uh, but also, if that situation presents it somewhere else with a different promoter who they trusted up to that point, they say, well, why don't you give us our 100 and talk to the headliner about giving them 2900 instead of 3000 Because that's the kind of thing that, for a small band, $100 is a lot. For a large band, it's probably still going to be a lot, but you're still getting $2,900 instead of 3000 You know, right. you're, you're going to have gas to put in the tank to get to the next show, most likely. Uh, so... Live music is great, but again, it can be hit or miss. Streaming is still not really getting there. Um, That's one of those things. But I do truly believe that having an online merch store and having pre-sales is really, really important. Uh, If people want to check out episode 19 of the Better Band Bureau podcast, just head on over to thebetterbandbureau.com slash 1919, not spelled out, just the numbers. And uh, it's an interview with Infinite Signal, who's a regional pop punk band in San Diego. And they did a great promotion plan for their new EP, Love Me Not, which came out a few months ago, and did a bunch of pre-sales and got people excited about it and basically made back their expenses before the EP even came out. Wow. And wow. that's... Absolutely killer. So, you know, they weren't getting any streaming royalties or anything. That was just pre-sales. That's amazing. That is Um, amazing. The other thing while I'm talking about that, that we mentioned in that episode, is they did a bunch of pre-production. And when they went into the studio, not only, of course, did they have a great studio engineer who was good at getting them through quickly, but they did so much pre-production that they came in under the quoted time that the engineer had given them and saved Mm. quite a bit of money doing that. So... Aside from the revenue streams, it's also important to, wherever you can, do the best work you can in the least amount of time so you can save money. Which might also mean, you know, if, let's say you're playing shows, COVID is over, and your guitarist is really introverted and hates talking to people, don't put your guitarist at the merch table. Like, that's... (laughs) Yeah, very true. I've seen so much how having an outgoing person at the merch table can increase your revenue. That's so important. So if we're talking about income streams, we have to talk about optimizing those income streams as well. And that's something that Infinite Signal has done. They have a great merch display for their shows, and they had a great promotion plan for their pre-orders. What you said, I can't even stress on that, how important that is, James, about the merch table thing. Because if you think about it, the merch table is the direct connection between your fans and your music. Mm. And that's where you hear all the individual stories of this song got me through a hard time. And if you have somebody at your merch table that can't interact with that, then mm. you've lost out on a fan for life. Whereas if you have somebody that can, that really likes people and, and, and can 
feed back into that and and gets energized by those conversations, then you're going to make fans that will be with you for the rest of your career. It's huge. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at a certain point when you're in a band that's playing to like 500 or more people a night, you're going to have a paid merch person. You might even be playing to fewer people than that. But definitely when you get to 500, you need a paid merch person. And at that point, as unfortunate as it is, you might not be able to have those interactions just because the merch person is going to be going like, sale, 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 sale. So at that point, you should have meet and greets. Don't Mm -hmm. charge for them. Like, If you're so busy with radio interviews and stuff, don't charge for meet and greets. Say something like, hey, if you buy a t-shirt, you can meet us. Something like that. Something easy. Or do what other bands do where, you know, they'll if the fans stick around after the show, the band will come out and meet them. You know, for the people who waited like 45 minutes, an hour, the band got their dinner, showered, all that stuff. And uh, then they'll go out and meet the fans who are loyal enough to wait because those are the fans who really have a connection with the band and they get rewarded. Mm. Um, you know, obviously meet and greets are a big source of revenue for lots of bands, but personally, that's just something that I don't agree with on an ethical level. It's like Mm. paying to meet someone just doesn't seem right to me. And I would never suggest that to someone. I I actually wasn't going to talk about this, but I think we're kind of headed in that territory. Can you explain what the, the, I've heard this on the uh, better band bureau podcast, the thousand fan theory, talk about what that is. And is is that the right number? Thousand? Yep. And I mean, you can adapt it, but essentially a thousand fans who are dedicated enough to support everything you do can sustain you for the rest of your life, as long as you keep them as a fan. Uh, And so this is one of my favorite bands, I Fight Dragons, did this years ago and built up a small following. I think they had about four or 5,000 Facebook fans at the time. This is back in 2010, 2011. Mm Mm-hmm. They made $10,000 in 48 hours by selling 100 lifetime membership USB membership cards, which came with all their music for life, and the USB card, and anytime you wanted to get into an iFight Dragons show for life, a guestless spot for you and a friend. Damn. 100 USBs times $100, they sold out in 48 hours. Wow. That's insane. And they, like I said, they only had four or 5,000 Facebook fans. That's amazing. But the thing is, those fans were of such high quality that they jumped on it. I see friends bands who, you know, their page has like a thousand likes. I'm like, yeah, that's because each member got 200 friends to like the page. Right. right. Those aren't your fans. Those are your friends. They're not going to drop a hundred dollars on you. You need to have actual fans who are so involved in what you do because your music has affected their lives that they will drop a hundred dollars to get, access to your music for life and if you think about it that's not a lot i fight dragons has moved on from that in 20 i want to say 12 or 13 they did a kickstarter with a goal of twenty thousand dollars knowing that their recording project was going to cost at least 40 and they were willing to spend the other twenty thousand out of pocket they made over a hundred thousand dollars on that kickstarter that's awesome yeah it's amazing and that goes back to they have a unique sound. They are very involved with their fans, not so much anymore, but especially back then. And they were there for people. They had a huge online community back when like online forums and chat rooms were still a thing. 
where you could log in and there would be 20 or 30 people chatting every night and the band would pop in and chat too. That's awesome. Well, guess what? If you have 20 or 30 people chatting every night and that community is a major part of their life, some of my friends I still talk to to this day, I've made from that community, those people are going to associate those friends and those good feelings with that band and buy. Mm-hmm. That's a great That's, point. Yeah. So that band has really harnessed the Thousand True Fans theory incredibly well. And they're still doing it. They hardly tour anymore, but they just dropped a new album um, last December or November. I can't remember when it was, but they're on Patreon now. Mm. And they're not doing what everyone else is where you pay five bucks or whatever a month. They have it set up so that every time they release an album, they charge their fans. So even if that's every five years, they send out an email saying, hey, we're about to charge you. If you don't want to pay for the next album, let us know and we'll, uh, and, uh, we'll take you out. But otherwise, in seven days, we're going to charge you whatever you paid for the last album. They have different... Yeah. It's basically like a recurring Kickstarter because that's the thing with Kickstarter is... It's one time. You do a Kickstarter and next time you have to do it all over again. Yeah. With Patreon, people don't want to pay five or ten dollars a month every month. Like they would have a much smaller audience. Mm-hmm. But if they say you can pay anywhere from five to five hundred dollars once every few years when we release an album, the fans are going to do it because why wouldn't they? Right. That's brilliant. It also seems like a really kind of ethical way to do business because you are saying, yeah, we will only charge you when there is a product. Right. Exactly. So I-, I would do that for a band I liked. Absolutely. So that's really cool. Is there I mean, that is that something you guys talk about, like that Patreon business model? Is that kind of the modern day analog of that USB uh, scheme that they came up with originally? Yeah, I think it definitely is. It's, you know, there's obviously not as much access for it. Um, but, uh, or I should say there wasn't as much access for the USBs because anyone can join the Patreon, whereas the USBs were super limited. So there's not that element of mm. scarcity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there still are special perks. I think it was if you spent $75, you could be in like a chorus section of the album or different things. I spent $35 and I got the vinyl 12-inch and a CD and a digital download three or four months before the actual album came out. Like the digital download was early, not the actual physical albums. But they just really care about their fans and recognize that that is why they're there. And that's part of it is they've made a business out of it, but they also recognize their fans are the reason they're there. So I think I want to jump in real quick and, and you did a great job of of answering this by example, but why don't we just spell it out and say, you know, what, what is a band supposed to do instead of doing the VIP meet and greet? You know, what would you recommend when you get to that level? Yeah. To uh, really replace that. Oh, sorry. One second. Do you mean like, the example I gave for buying the t-shirts, or do you mean what iFi Dragons is doing? Um, I mean, not necessarily, like, but because that's a very specific example of what they're doing to be ethical to their fans and kind of reward them. Because mm-hmm. it, it kind of strikes me as it's not a businessy, dirty, like money-grabbing scheme. It's they're giving their fans an opportunity that they've already built a relationship with to invest mm-hmm. back into them. And why wouldn't they? Because they've already, the value that their fans are getting is higher than what money is being exchanged. 
if that makes sense. So yeah, let's say you're you're in a band and you're you're building up because obviously you can't sell VIP meet and greets whenever you first start a band. You just gotta you gotta go and play shows. But <laughs> once you build up right. to that level where you know you do, um, there's a little bit more scarcity where you have maybe less time to meet with fans. But a lot of people they want that attention and they're willing to pay money. So what would you mm-hmm. recommend? What what would you recommend a band doing instead of? Uh, doing the whole paid meet and greet thing. Yeah, for the meet and greets, I would say just replacing them with some kind of deal where you say, hey, if you spend $20 at the merch table, you'll get a wristband for the meet and greet. Or if you spend 50 bucks Mm. at the merch table. Because that way, people can still meet the band, but they're also getting a tangible product as part of that. Mm. And so if somebody wants to meet the band badly enough, they'll spend the money just to get it. But at least... You know, they're not going to walk away thinking, oh, like I talked to them for 30 seconds. I got nothing out of that. Because unfortunately, that does happen sometimes. Yeah, sure. If it's really busy and a band can only say hi and take a picture, that's what happens. And the bands don't like that either. I mean, yeah. There are artists, I can't say who it is, unfortunately, but there are artists who stopped doing meet and greets because it was so impersonal. And these are artists who were making thousands of dollars per fan from hundreds of fans per night Hmm. doing those meet and greets um all i can say is it was an arena level artist that i worked a couple shows for and uh the third show that artist stopped doing meet and greets for the rest of tour and i don't believe that artist has done meet and greets since then because the artist hated them so much Hmm. and so you know, the management said, this is what you're going to do. And the mm. artist finally said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, so artists don't like it, but having those quality connections is great. And so if you can't meet everyone, yeah, have a, have a minimum buy at the merch table. And then if somebody buys that much merch, they can meet the band, they get a wristband or something to go talk to them. Yeah. And I like that you said too about you know, the bands don't like it either because so from a more band perspective, because I've I've been at that level before, it's not that bands and the members in them turn into jerks when they get to that level and they get like big egos. I mean, sometimes that happens, <laughs> but I think more often what happens is your schedule just gets filled up with all kind of things. Like you'll have radio interviews and then all kind of things you got to do right before your show. And then also a meet and greets tagged on. You just might not feel like it. Maybe you only slip two two hours or four hours the night before and that's i think where you hear these horror stories of oh i paid this amount of money for the meet and greet and i met the band and it was terrible they were jerks and so it's i really like the advice that you gave there james because it just gives a better alternative all the way around for the fans and for the band so that's Mm -hmm. great yeah thanks and i you know i i'm sorry to hear that you can relate to that because it's truly unfortunate yeah That's no fun for anyone involved. And I guess to put it in the simplest possible words, fans are buying an intangible product when they buy a ticket to a show. Don't upsell them on another intangible product. Give them something tangible to take home. Mm. Uh, and it's good. I, I, like I really that. like that. I like that something, yeah, you can you you know you have it, you can walk away with it. Are CDs Still relevant for this, or are you talking about some other kind of merch, like whatever else, t-shirts or whatever? Personally, I'm old school. I love it when bands have CDs at the merch table. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But in uh, 2019, according to the At Venue 
uh, end of year report, CDs accounted for something like 4% of all sales Dang, at the merch table. Wow. And vinyl accounted for 1% of all sales at the merch table. Uh, and that's across all genres, all venue sizes, anything from, you know, like 50 cap up to 20,000 or more. Really? Yeah. That it's, uh, it's a great report. Um, I will send you guys the link to that report so you can put it in your show notes yeah, if that'd you be want. Great. And that way uh, the listeners can check it out because it's incredible to see. On the flip side, black t-shirts make up 50% of all sales. Black okay. t-shirts. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Specifically black t-shirts. And then white t-shirts is like another, or uh, not white t-shirts, but non-black t-shirts is like another 20%. So That's basically- so funny. Uh, more than half of all sales come from t-shirts okay is that all genres yeah let you know let me pull up the report real quick right now and i can yeah i'm curious i was gonna ask you what the lion's share was of black t-shirts i mean i buy a lot of black t-shirts at shows so i guess that makes sense (laughs) so from being on tour i love black t-shirts because if you don't get a chance to get a shower and you accidentally (laughs) spill coffee on yourself it doesn't show as bad Nice. That's the so, whole <laughs> benefit of a black t-shirt. I, I have to ask, I have the feeling you've never done giant summer music festivals, have you? Or have um, you? I've done a couple of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why, why are you asking? Because the black t-shirts don't stay black for more than a week. <laughs> uh, true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> I have shirts that were like a very dark navy blue, almost black. And they're like pink now after a summer or two on the road. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I pulled up the report here re- real quick. Let me scroll down to the breakdown. Okay, I lied. Fifty percent of all items sold were a T-shirt. Okay. Fifty-nine percent of that fifty percent was black T-shirts. So you're looking at basically. Uh, let's see. 60 divided by 2, 30% of all merch, give or take, was black t-shirts. That's crazy. Yeah. What's, what's next after t-shirts? Uh, long sleeves, 5%. Okay. So it's a factor of 10. Yeah, t-shirts wow. sold out the second place item 10 times. That's, That's insane. Amazing. Yeah. And I'm all for having different colored t-shirts, but I have literally gone to a show and seeing that, like, oh, there's a red shirt and a white shirt and a blue shirt and a gray shirt, and there's no black T-shirt. Okay, I'm not going to buy anything. <laughs> that was literally my thought process. Dude, so that's that... how important it is for any artist to have at least one black T-shirt at their merch table. That's worth the price of admission right there. That's that's such good advice. <laughs> oh, it's I have the feeling it's the kind of thing that people just don't think about. Because that yeah. show that happened at, that was a band who at the time was signed to... RCA or DCD2? I can't remember which it was, but hmm. either way, a huge label. You know, hmm. RCA is RCA and DCD2 is uh, Pete Wentz's label. Mm-hmm. So not minor stuff. It's not like they were on, you know, shoestring budget radio label or whatever. I'd be interested about the analytics too, and, and they might not have these details tracked well enough, but you might be able to sell more different colored t-shirts if you just have a black t-shirt as a band versus if you don't have any black t-shirts like you were saying well i went to a show and they didn't have any black teachers so i'm not going to buy anything but i'm sure there's people out there that they bought a black t-shirt and they also bought another colored t-shirt too so you probably increase your sales Hmm. just by having a black t-shirt if you don't have that already yeah 
Yeah, it's point. it probably is, and I'm and I'm sure they have the data for it, but they haven't published that. Like yeah. the the report that they published is really extensive. There's a lot of data in it. Uh, it only covers the U.S., but that's at venues main territory. Which, on that note, if anyone's looking for a merchandise selling app, unless you're making bank, I don't recommend at venue. Merchcat is much more affordable, and they've in fact waived their fees for online sales during the COVID crisis. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, they do a really cool thing where they have a Merch Cat fan app. And, and I'm not like an affiliate or anything for them. I just like love their product. And your fans can download that app and buy your shirts. So it's literally an online merch store, but only an app form. And rather than saying, you've earned this much. This is how much is for the shirt. This is how much for the shipping. They just say, you sold a shirt for $20 or whatever price it is. Here's your $20 and a prepaid shipping label. So you don't have to figure out anything. You just print out the label, put it on a package, put the merch in the package, and put it in your mailbox. That's it. You're done. That's nice. That's really nice. Yeah. It's, that's one of the reasons I love their product so much. It's like really cool. And I've chatted with the founder, Vanessa. She really uh, she left the corporate world to help bands. So when I see stuff like that, I'm like, okay, you know what? This person clearly has someone's someone else's best interests at heart and they're right. trying to make it work. Like, go support that by all means. Yeah. So is that from from the fan's perspective or user experience, that just that uh, MerchCat integrates to a band's website? Uh so the band would set up their items in the MerchCat app as if they're selling them at a show. Okay. And then they can toggle if they want to also sell items uh, individually on each item in the MerchCat fan app, which is basically a marketplace for fans to go look at merch from different bands and you can search for your favorite band and see if they're in there. Very cool. Um, yeah, it's something that I would love to see more people using because I know a lot of people use it for the live shows, but they don't use it for the online sales, even though it would be such a cool feature. Mm, okay. Hey, well, before we, yeah, go, oh, ahead. go ahead, no, go ahead, Vadim. I was going to move on. So you, you started with before we, so I'm going to let yes. you go. <laughs> okay, great. So before we move on to, I know there's a lot of other topics we want to get to, but we mentioned a long time ago, whenever we first started this interview, um, I think Vadim, you might've said it where, Hey, you know, like we didn't get into, a lot of us didn't get into music or into playing in bands because we wanted to make a lot of money. We just did it because it's fun. So with that being said, and all the business stuff we talked about, do you have any strategies or ideas for, especially for bands where maybe you don't have anybody in, in your band that, uh, maybe excels at, um, being business savvy, marketing savvy, or even organized, but you have people that want it to be successful. Do you have any strategies to give people um, as far as how to organize your time to think about all the necessary things to to make a band successful and, and still have fun on the road? I, I'm thinking in particular when you're out there touring, but you can just talk about in general of just how to compartmentalize the fun along with the stuff that mm. needs to happen to make it work. Yeah, so that's always a tough spot if somebody isn't naturally inclined towards numbers and business stuff. But one thing that I always suggest, no matter what, is to decide what each member is responsible for and split things up. So even if 
somebody isn't super business savvy, find out who hates numbers the least (laughs) (laughs) and say, okay, you're the numbers guy. And all of you just keep each other in check. So you'll have a numbers guy, you'll have a graphic design guy, whoever likes to talk to people will be the merch guy um, and or girl or whatever, like uh-huh. it could be anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And then you'll have somebody who handles social media and basically everybody has their little task. So everyone's spending, you know, a couple hours a day rather than one person spending eight hours a day while everyone else is napping in the back of the van, right. uh, which also that's driving is another thing that should be delegated doesn't matter how people do it, if you have a schedule or what, as long as no one's exhausted when they're driving. That's just not cool. Bad. Yeah, I've seen that situation. happen, and that's not good. That's good. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and you, you did exactly that, was, was how the breakdown works. What are some of those roles? So I think you, I think you mentioned uh, some really good ones there. Uh, so you started talking a little bit about MerchCat and things like, well, basically technology. Talk about some other, some other helpful apps or you know, if, if a band is just starting out, what do they need at a bare minimum to, to get started with the business side of things? Yeah. I see too many bands who just have a Facebook or an Instagram and a band camp, which is a great start. But all bands should have a website with Google Analytics and Facebook Pixel installed. Even if you're not using the data from Facebook Pixel, which I'll get into what that is in a second, mm-hmm. you should be collecting that data for as long as possible. Because the more data you have, the better it is, and the easier it is to then target those people with ads on Facebook, which trust me, that's not nearly as scummy as it sounds because (laughs) you don't have any data about those people. You can't correlate, hey, this person from New Jersey visited my site because you can see that in Google Analytics and then go, oh, that's this person on Facebook. You don't get that data. Facebook has that data and you can then advertise to that person. Right. But anyway, the reason to have a website these days is, to be honest, to pixel people. That's just how it is. Nobody's going to seek out your website. They're going to look for your Instagram. They're going to look for your Facebook. Mm. They might find your website if they search for tour dates. But if you can get people to, for example, go to your merch store by going through your website, you've just pixeled them. That's perfect. If you can get people to sign up for your email list by going through your website, congratulations, you've just Facebook pixeled them. That means that down the road, you can show ads to that specific person, which is going to be way cheaper than advertising to everyone on Facebook or everyone who likes that band that sounds kind of like you, but not really. If somebody has heard your name a bunch and been to your website and they see an ad from you, they're going to be much more likely to interact with that ad than somebody who's never heard from you before. Right. I forget the. Oh, go ahead. Hey, I was going to say just just to to plant a flag there because I think what you said is so is so important is that you may think well my band is nowhere near ready for advertising we don't even have a budget yet but I think what you're saying is the earlier you can start collecting that pixel data it might be a year down the road that you say hey let's run some ads by the time you're ready you'll have collected some data that then you can use through channels like Facebook and Google to show ads to people to whom they're relevant basically. Exactly. And you never know when you're going to need to run an ad. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen bands who had their van broken into and they run an ad for the GoFundMe, Mm. stuff like that. And, you know, ethically speaking, okay, that's kind of weird to run an ad for a GoFundMe because your van got broken into. It's like, wait, if you don't have money, how are you running the ad? But then you think (laughs) about it, oh, wait, you know what? Like, 
people already donated a hundred dollars. They're just using that hundred dollars to make sure more people see it. Like, okay, that's right. I see the logic there. I don't know if I would do it, but I get it. You know, it, it makes sense in theory. To plant a flag too about the, you know, grabbing that pixel data to see who's visiting your website. So you know who to serve ads to, uh, you just, um, sparked a uh, memory that I had of, of listening to a Mike Shinoda interview. And for anybody who doesn't know who that is, he's the leader, rapper, guitar player guy from um, Linkin Park. And he was talking to, I forget who was interviewing him about this, but he was talking about how he was searching what playlist they were, Linkin Park was getting uh, fed into on Spotify. And he wasn't happy with the results because they would serve him alongside a lot of other artists that were popular in the, two th- the early 2000s, but was also saying that these bands and artists don't sound anything like me. Why are we getting, why do we continuously get put with these artists? And the answer was, well, um, all the people that listen to you also listen to these other artists or other people that listen or people that listen to these other artists are much more likely to listen to you. So I just want to make a quick note and say that on your point, James, that you could serve ads. If you don't have that data, you could maybe serve ads too. Well, we like this band a lot and we think we sound like them, but your fans might not, uh, or fans of that band that you're targeting might not like you at all. You might be completely surprised by the demographics that you get of who's visiting your website. Yeah, the, the data doesn't lie. And, and there's a psychological effect that happens too when you've been to a website and then the next day, like Sweetwater does this to me all the time because I'm freaking <laughs> gearhead, right? But like, I'll look something up and then a day later, I'll see a picture of it. I'll see an ad for it. And I'm like, my attention is drawn to it automatically because it's still, the memory of looking at it is still fresh in my mind. And, and you're, you're, you're kind of playing on that psychological effect a little bit where somebody who's been to your website has clearly been interested in some, something of yours in the past. When they see that ad, as James said, they're much more likely to then interact with it, which is what you want. Exactly. Definitely. And to go deeper than that, you know, I always hear stories about Facebook's listening in and all that kind of stuff. I don't believe it goes that far, but I do know that their messages get keyword searched. That's so obvious. I had a friend uh, the other day, I, my MacBook charger broke and I posted an Instagram story about it. <laughs> and my friend replied to me, I was like, uh, I can't remember what she said about it, but I said, RIP charger. And she didn't mention the word charger. She just replied to the story that mentioned it, uh, not in text like I had s- spoken it. Yeah. Anyway, the next day she messages me and says, you mentioned a charger. Now I'm getting ads for chargers. No way. Yeah. So unless, (laughs) you know, there could be a coincidence that she somehow interacted with something else about a charger, but I would be unsurprised if it came out that Instagram, while I don't read your DMs, keyword search them. That Mm. would not be surprising to me at all. Uh, And if Instagram's doing it, Facebook's doing it. It's the same company. It's, you know. (laughs) <laughs> There's, <laughs> they right. have the same policies basically. Yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, when you when you get ready to run ads on Facebook, you can either choose or let Facebook choose whether those ads get. It's called placement, whether they get placed on Instagram or on Facebook. And you know, there's different ways to optimize that. So, since we're on advertising, I guess when is the right time to start considering advertising? Is it for every band? Or like when when do you know you're ready? 
that's a huge rabbit hole. It's definitely not for every band. Uh, it, it really depends because you want to get as much organic reach as possible. Advertising typically is one of the less effective ways for bands to reach people. Mm. Um, one thing that I love that not many people know is a thing, and this only works on the desktop version of a Facebook page, not the mobile version. There's an option hidden in your Facebook that allows you to target your organic audience with your posts, which is really mm. useful because that will drive up your engagement if you do it right. And then because your engagement rate is better, Facebook will show it to more people. Hmm. So what I'm talking about here is, for example, if you're announcing a show that is just in one area, it's not a tour or anything. It's just like, okay, I'm going to play a show in Burlington, Vermont. Most of your Facebook fans aren't going to care about that because they're probably not in or near Burlington, Vermont. Right. But you can use that organic targeting to only show it to people within 50 miles of Burlington, Vermont. And guess what? Those people are much more likely to comment or like on it, which means that the percentage of people who saw it and interacted on it will be much higher than if you posted it to the world because let's say a thousand people see it in the world and two people interact with it. That's a 0.2% engagement rate. Right, and then Facebook looks at that and says, this is not good content because the interaction rate is low. Exactly. But if you limit it to Burlington and the surrounding areas and 50 people see it and two people like it, guess what? You're at 4%. And that's way better. And because you're at 4%, Facebook's going to say, oh, hey, this is somewhat relevant. Let's show it to more people in the Burlington, Vermont area. And the more traction it gets, Facebook will basically keep testing it. And until the engagement rate starts dropping they'll start showing it to more and more people. And then when it drops, they'll say, okay, you know what, we're, we're done now. We're going to show it to fewer people. But mm. that's one of the best tools that is out there for artists to increase their organic engagement rate. And uh, it's not nearly as complex as what you can do with ads, but you can do location. I believe you can do age, that kind of stuff. And just the basic demographics. And that's super helpful and more people should be using it. And that's a global setting that affects all of your posts or is on a post-by-post -post basis? You have to turn it on as a global setting to enable it, and then you turn it on post-by-post. -post. Mm. Um, so let me, uh, just so the readers aren't totally lost, I can tell you where it is. Let me just pull up Facebook. Sorry, one second. You can cut this out. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> it's all good. So if you're on a Facebook page that you're an admin of, you would go to the settings page. And then on my page, it's the fourth thing down under the general settings tab. It might be different for other people, but it's called audience optimization for posts. You click the mm. little edit button and you check it. So the box is checked and you save changes. And then when you go to make a post, as you're writing the post, oh, of course, Facebook's moving everything over to publishing tools now, so let me go over to publishing tools. <laughs> they're changing, they, they move things over to publishing tools, and now they're moving over to Creator Studio. So yeah. I'll actually right now do a quick test. When you're in publishing tools, you have the option for newsfeed or Instagram, and you see the scheduling thing, which says share now, and then you see public, and then you see boost. Click the public dropdown, and then 
newsfeed targeting. And so you can mm. put in interests, age range, gender, locations, and languages. And you can save that, and that will apply to that one post. But that option only shows up if you have gone into your settings and enabled the Dude. Uh, audience optimization for posts. That's awesome. I love that. So that's also going to give you some practice for targeting once you do get ready, if you do decide you're ready for advertising. I did, I did not know that you could do that. So that's very cool. Yeah. And like I said, it's not available on mobile. They're making it more and more difficult to find. Last time I checked, it was still available on the main page. Now it's only available in the um, publishing tools area. Hmm. Wow. So and they already took scheduling out of the main page area. So they're clearly trying to move people over to the Facebook business side of things, which is fine. But this setting, since it's off by default, it's clearly something they don't want people to see. <sighs> it's been hidden for three or four years. I don't know why they haven't removed it yet. I wouldn't be surprised if they do in the future. But for now, use it while you can. Hmm. Yeah. Unless you mess it up, it can't hurt you. And it would be tough to mess it up. That's awesome. Very true. Yeah. So anyway, I totally got sidetracked. You were asking me about tools and technology that a band should use. So for a website, personally, I'm a big WordPress fan. I don't recommend it for everyone, though, just because it is a little more complicated to run. Uh, and I should specify, I do not mean WordPress.com. I mean using a third-party site like uh, GoDaddy or Hostinger or any web host, really, to set up WordPress. If you go to wordpress.com, it's all locked down. It's really expensive. You can't really do anything with it. It's terrible. The easiest thing for lots of bands is Wix. It's going to cost you more than a WordPress site, but it basically just works. And that's the advantage. Uh, the other thing is that Wix actually will uh, let you have a merch store on their site, mm. which integrates with a Wix merch store app so you can sell stuff at your shows, which is tied into the same inventory. So let's say you have five t-shirts left in your inventory and you sell three of them at a show using the Wix merch app. Well, now you only have two left and your website automatically updates the inventory so mm. people can't buy it. And then you have to email them saying, hey, we're so sorry, we sold it at a show. Like we can't fulfill your order. Here's a refund. Please don't hate us. Right. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so that's one thing I love, even though I personally don't uh, use Wix. I know lots of people who do, and it's a great tool. Uh, I already mentioned MerchCat. Uh, I love using Wave Apps for accounting. There's a couple things that aren't so great about it, but it is free, which is great. And it also mm. will let you take payments via credit card for a 2.9% fee and 30 cents, which is standard for basically everyone. Uh, and unique to Wave Apps, at least from what I've seen, is you can get incoming bank transfers for 1% fees, which right now during the COVID crisis are actually 0%. So if somebody does want to pay you with a bank transfer, uh, you can use that. Within the US, international bank transfers, transfer-wise, is amazing. Uh, that's really mm. great if you're doing international tours. Um, and then just old school stuff, Google Sheets or Excel or uh, Google Docs, stuff like that can really come in handy. As much as I rely on technology and apps, sometimes it's easier just to make a spreadsheet and use that. It really depends on the situation, but I still love spreadsheets. I grew up using spreadsheets <laughs> for merchandise stuff. I, You know, there's apps to do show settlements now, but it's easier to do it on a spreadsheet because <laughs> you can see all the numbers there. It's not like you're 
to put it this way, and most bands listening to this probably aren't going to be doing their own settlement because at this level you'd have a tour manager who does it for you. Mm-hmm. But you basically, in an app like Master Tour, you fill it out and it does it all behind the scenes. So you can't see how the numbers are actually working. It just tells you this is the number and you better believe it. Mm-hmm. In a spreadsheet, if something doesn't look right, you can go back through and look at all the formulas and say, oh, yeah, I did a stupid and that's <laughs> where I made a mistake. So I'm going to fix that. And look, my numbers line up now. Everything's all okay. Uh, everything's all right. So for things like that, I'm definitely a fan of spreadsheets, at least as a backup. But you know, budgets and things like that. Uh, one app that I use personally that I really love is YNAB, and which is you need a budget. And that makes it really easy to budget for myself, my personal finances to make sure I don't go out of the way. But when you sign up for an account, you can have as many budgets as you want. So you can put the band budget in there or whatever other business budget you want uh, and set aside your band money and keep track of who pays and what and all kinds of stuff like that. I wouldn't use it as an accounting tool. It's not designed for that, but at least you can use it for budgeting. Uh, and I do use it separately from accounting software. I use both just so I can keep track of business expenses and keep track of my uh, accounting. I, I've heard a lot of good reviews about that. And it's actually not that expensive either, right? It's, uh, it's like it's, five bucks a month or something. Is that right? It's a little more than that. They only sell it by the year, which is like $84. So I think it's like seven fifty okay. or $8 a month, which is really not bad. Totally worth it. I used to yeah. stress out about money all the time. Now that I have YNAB, I don't care about money at all. And I don't mean that like <laughs> I don't care about money. I mean that YNAB tells me if there's an issue mm-hmm. and I tell YNAB how much I want to set aside for certain things like retirement and food and like a fun budget. And unless something's wrong, I don't care. And if something's wrong, YNAB will highlight things in bright orange being like yo you messed up like fix this now before there's a bigger problem um and so you can use that for a band too you know i love it yeah Yeah, for for listeners who can't see james when he said he doesn't care about money actually lit a cigar with a hundred dollar bill so that's not going to come through on the podcast but (laughs) yeah no that's uh uh, it's april 23rd missed it by that much anyway um that's a great app for the past month or two, I've been using Timular, which is basically a time tracking app where you can have different categories, you can put in hashtags, you can have clients um, by tagging names. It's really versatile to tracking time. But personally, I just use it to track what I'm doing. So if I procrastinate for two hours, I can look back and say, I procrastinated for two hours instead of working. <laughs> like. I should not do that anymore. So it's just kind of a reminder. And uh, they, for anyone listening, they sell like a little eight-sided or ten-sided die, basically, that you flip for different categories. I don't use that. I just use the free version of the app where you click on stuff, like old school, and it works fine. Uh, You can have it on your computer and your phone. You don't need the egg thing because that's like, I mean, it, it's cool, but it's a gimmick. If what you is that? Me. What do you do with the? I don't even understand the concept. It's like <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> basically, basically, uh, it, from my understanding, I forget how many sides exactly it has. It, I, let's go with eight. And whatever side is facing up, that is the activity you're tracking. And if you don't want it to track, you put it in a cradle so it's like perfectly upright with the corners at the top and bottom. 
And then as soon as you oh, turn it okay. onto one side, it starts tracking your time for that activity. I see. I see. So it's like a chess. It's like an advanced multi-dimensional chess clock type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Okay. Man, I haven't played chess in years. But yeah, it's, <laughs> you can do everything in the app for free. You don't need to gotcha. spend 80 bucks on the egg. Like that's Dang, 80 gotcha. bucks. Yeah, and it connects with Bluetooth. It's cool, but you don't need That it. is cool. Yeah, I do like that. So we're at, we're at almost at an hour here, about an hour here. I do want to ask you two more things. One is just about releasing music. and Because in, in the notes here, you had some really good thoughts. So I want to get your thoughts on if we're recording and we're going to be releasing music, what's a good release strategy? Because I know for myself 10 years ago, when I, you know, you release an album, you put in, especially as a DIY artist, it takes so much work, right? To record, right? Record those songs, mix them, get them to sound their best. You put them out into the world and you wake up the next day and like your mom listened to it and maybe two of your <laughs> friends. It, and you know, it's underwhelming and it's a frustrating experience. So what's a better way to plan a release? Well, so this is another one that I have to give a lot of credit to Infinite Signal for uh, because they really brought this to light. And like, this is stuff that I always knew in theory should be done and everyone really in theory knows should be done. But when they talked about their results, it was amazing. What they did is they went into the studio in March of 2019. They didn't post anything on social media or tell anyone until October of 2019. And that's mm. when they started posting studio content. And rather than having eight months between the announcement of that, hey, we're in the studio, and the announcement of their EP, because it takes a while, like you said, to do this, they waited till a couple weeks before they were ready to announce the pre-orders. And then they started posting all the content they had from the studio with two or three posts a week, pictures, videos, behind-the-scenes stuff, leading up to a single release, which is, I believe, when they announced the EP and dropped the pre-orders, and then kept stuff going for another few weeks, and then they did another single release, and another month or so, and then they dropped the album and played a release show. This was back at the end of January, so things weren't locked down yet. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's how you see all the major label acts do it. I mean, if you think about your favorite bands who are signed to labels, they don't post, hey, we're in the studio, when they're actually in the studio. They post, hey, we're in the studio, when they're about to announce the album. Because they know that if they post, we're in the studio, and there's radio silence for six to eight months, (laughs) no one cares. Yeah, They're not going to sell a single copy of that album by doing that. But if they post everything as a consistent stream leading up to the album, they're going to sell albums like crazy. And obviously major label bands are going to do cool stuff which is kind of crazy like, you know, bundling albums with ticket sales so their uh sound scan mm-hmm. numbers go up and they do better on Billboard or doing four different colors of the vinyl record so fans can buy all four and their (laughs) sale numbers go up and all that kind of stuff. That's probably not practical for most DIY bands, but tricks like that, basically look at all your favorite bands and see what they do, because that's probably what you should be doing too. I love it. Of course, this is why the, the downside of this is then people come into the studio for four hours and are like, we're gonna do an eight song album this is <laughs> no we saw it they <laughs> yeah. yeah 
And and to to be fair, that eight months, I think they said it was a total of seventeen days of right, right. pre production tracking and mixing over eight months. So you know that's basically two days a month. But they spread it out like that because that's what their schedules allowed. They all worked full time. All three members of that band, mm-hmm. um, it's they're quite busy, so they had to space it out like that. But they did it, and. You know, other bands might be able to go into the studio and have a finished product in a month and a half. That's sure. great. If, yeah. If you're able to do that because that's your full time gig, that's awesome. But once the product is finished, then you're still going to have to market it. So maybe it just means delaying your posts by a month or so, something like that. I love it. You want to be ready of the order of things before you release anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, I also like uh, actually Ben what what you guys did with Nafal, which is all the playthrough videos around the time that the single is being released. That's really cool way to engage people, and that's also something that is really huge now with all the COVID stuff. You see all of like just bands in their it's just musicians in their bedrooms, messy bedroom in the back. People love the intimate <laughs> feel of it. They feel like they're in there with you. They're just playing through their songs and even posting like tabs and stuff. Those are all very cool strategies, and I think. I have a feeling those types of things will outlast the the pandemic too. I think people are going to get used to them and there's always going to be a place for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's kind of the way things are shifting in general. Like even before the pandemic, I think it was Marshmallow did a live show on Fortnite or something mm. like that, one or PUBG, one of those games. It's like, okay. And at the time I was like, Ah, that's cool. Maybe in a couple of years, once people have better sound systems in their phones, but like for right now, ugh, whatever. And then like four months later, COVID hits and everyone's doing live streams and virtual concerts. And it's like, okay, this makes sense now. Like <laughs> if more people can do shows in Fortnite or PUBG, whichever one it was, that might work out really well for them. Yeah. Um, mm. I, I kind of, as much as I love the artists doing solo acoustic stuff, in the long term, I don't think that's going to hold up. Like doing the playthroughs and tabs and all that kind of stuff, that's great. That's going to stick around, I hope. But doing a solo acoustic show just doesn't really translate the songs as they were unless they were already solo acoustic. Right. Um, but another one of my favorite bands, Ballyhoo uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, has done several live streams from their sound company's warehouse with full lights and production and a really solid mix Mm. and played for like an hour and a half, two hours. And it was insane. Hmm. And, uh, I didn't get to watch the first stream, but I'm assuming they did the same thing that they did on the second stream, which is they had an exclusive t-shirt that you can only buy for 24 hours. Nice. Yeah. And, I bought a shirt, not going to lie. <laughs> like, they, <laughs> for the second stream, they played one of my favorite albums in full, which is why I watched. So oh, that was about dope. 45 minutes, and then they played for another hour after that. I'm like, dude, I can drop 30 bucks on a shirt because I just watched a one-hour, 50-minute stream of one of my favorite bands, and I can tell they spent a lot of money paying the sound company to do this and getting a really solid stream. There's like four or five different camera angles and all kinds of crazy mm. stuff. Okay, I can drop 30 bucks. Not only that, my fiance loves the band too. She didn't even watch the stream, but I showed her the shirt and she's like, Yeah, can you get two of them? So now. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the best thing is that they were all pre orders. They're not even getting shipped till April 28th, which I don't know when this episode drops, but that's five days from when we're recording this. 
So they know exactly how many they need to print, and they're not going to end up with a crazy overstock of merch. Not only that, Brilliant. somebody goes to their district line store, which is where it was hosted, and they say, oh, you know what? I like this shirt too, and I'm already paying for shipping. I might as well get this. Their one mistake, in my opinion, was that their district line's store was sold out of the copy of the album that they were playing in full oh. on vinyl. I have the CD, but not the record on vinyl. Whereas their actual website did have it on vinyl, but then I would have been charged for shipping twice. So if you're going to do something like that, have it all in the same store, because yeah. I would have added it to my cart instantly if I didn't have to pay shipping to two separate stores. Because it was two separate stores, I was like, you know, I, I can't justify that. Yeah, so, interesting. That's the one caveat, and the one thing I think they... Uh, they didn't necessarily do it wrong, but they messed it up, you know? So gotcha. overall, it was a great idea and well executed. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I'm surprised more people haven't done that already. Um, a couple months ago, uh, well, one month ago, it seems like a couple months because quarantine, I did an interview for a local Vermont streaming festival to benefit the food bank. And I was asked, what should bands do? And I said, do a high production quality stream. And so far, I've only seen Ballyhoo do that. Every other band has done stuff from home, which is absolutely mm, great. Mm. But I want to see an actual live show, not somebody sitting in their acoustic, uh, in their bedroom for the 20th time. That's right. the thing. I can watch that a handful of times, but not, not that much. And actually, I should say, I have seen one other artist do that at a friend's studio, but he plays a lot of solo acoustic shows anyway. So as cool as it was to see him in the studio with a nice mix, his songs would have translated just as well if he was sitting in his bedroom. Yeah. I want to be mindful of your time here, but I do want to get your thoughts. You just, you started talking about it, about the COVID situation. I know you don't have a crystal ball on this and none of us do, but what are your thoughts right now on the future of touring and for bands? You mentioned one of the things, you know, if you're in a band, what should you be focusing your energy on right now? Yeah, so there are three main things. We actually just did a two-part um, recording of an episode on the Better Band Bureau. It's going to be episodes 24 and 25 coming mm -hmm. out in a few weeks. The first part is stay relevant and stay liquid. You want to make sure that you don't run out of money and that people still remember who you are whenever this all ends. I've heard anything from this fall to the end of 2021. And... Having seen bands like AFI, who I mentioned earlier, who back in the day would disappear for two years between album cycles, and then they come back and lost all their momentum, mm. that doesn't work. If you were just starting out as a DIY band and you just started getting momentum, you have to keep that up, because whenever COVID ends, all that momentum is going to be gone if you don't do anything with it. So stay relevant, do good live streams online, interact with your fans, do Q&As, do whatever you can think of that people will enjoy. Just stay connected, even if that means reaching out to people one-on-one -on -one saying, hey, like, how are you doing? Like, I know you've been listening to our music and we just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. Like, are you okay? That's people are going to really appreciate that and have that personal connection. Now, obviously, if you have 10,000 fans, you can't do that. But one thing I'm a big advocate for is have a list of your top 100 fans so you can reach out to them and establish a personal connection. And 100 people to keep a relationship with sounds like a lot. But again, if you have four or five people in the band, you can kind of split that up. 
And I wouldn't go as so far as to say, okay, you take a, this quarter and you take this quarter. Just see who has the best relationship with that person already. And chances are that unless one person does the majority of the talking, which is possible, you're all going to kind of say, okay, you know what? I, I think he knows that person better. Or she knows that person better. Like, let them deal with those people. That's great advice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the second step that you want to do is just educate yourself. Consume as much valuable information as you can while things are mm. slow and there's no shows happening. Uh, you know, obviously many people are still working, but many people aren't. If you're one of the people who is unfortunate and isn't working right now, don't just go and sit and watch Netflix all day or play video games or whatever. Like, do that in moderation, but also spend some time learning about what you want to learn about. Focus on your strengths within the band. So if you're a great songwriter, improve your songwriter. But make sure your bandmate who does the business stuff is improving on the business stuff. Uh, if you have a bandmate who, well, driving is driving. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, figure stuff out for each member. If you have a bandmate who's a really good tech head and knows all the tech, have them figure out a better way to store and unpack and load your gear buy some lights and program a light show, mm. stuff like that. Because then that ties into the next thing. Number three is be prepared to get back on the road whenever this all opens up because it's going to be crazy. All the bands are going to want to tour at once and not everyone's going to get a show. So the more right. prepared you are by having a list of venues to reach out to and having a tour routing so you can hit up the venue and say, I want a date on this date this is what we have. We have a package two bands coming through. Uh, we have sound and lights. I can find three locals to get on the bill to bring out more people. The venues are going to want you over some band who says, please, can I have a show? We are just starting, so we deserve it. Like The more prepared you are, the more likely it is you're actually going to get into that venue when everyone's fighting for dates. And this is even at bigger levels. I have a friend who um, he does booking for Artery Global, which is now Dynamic Talent International. He said even for rescheduling shows to the fall, which this was back in March, uh, they were rescheduling shows to the fall. No one could get new dates anymore. It was all rescheduled shows. Now, at this point, they're not booking anything new because they don't know when, and so it's not worth doing who knows how many hours of work to book a show that's quite likely going to get rescheduled again. So, it really just all depends, but the main things are stay relevant, stay liquid, educate yourself, and be prepared. That's great, man. Ben, do you have any other thoughts, questions? No, man. I'm I'm kind of blown away. Like I, I knew this would be great having you on, but I've learned a lot, and I think this has been a really great interview. So I've been absorbing as much as I hope all of our listeners are. Yeah, for sure. So, so James, tell us about where where can people find you? Where are your resources? Yeah, so one thing, obviously, is the podcast. We're in every major podcasting app, uh, or you can go to thebetterbandbureau.com slash podcast. Very easy. <laughs> and uh, you'll find our latest episodes there, but it's obviously even easier to just go into your phone's podcast app, whatever it is, Google, Apple, we're in there. Uh, and you can subscribe if you like it. I hope you do. We're about uh, 21 episodes in right now, 22 episodes somewhere around there, uh, recorded a couple weeks ahead. And so there's a lot of content there to consume. Don't be scared of it. 
pick what seems most relevant to you and then go back and listen to the other stuff if you're so inclined. Uh, we do have a Facebook group that we would love for everyone to join because it is all about helping bands grow their business. We don't allow any kind of spammy posts where bands just drop their latest music video without any discussion or anything like that. There's way too many groups for that. Mm-hmm. Every single post is focused about building your business or asking questions or sharing your music video if you have a unique story about it and want feedback. Uh, so people can find that either by searching for The Better Band Bureau on Facebook or going to thebetterbandbureau.com slash group. Uh, we do have a few questions that we ask everyone to fill out, but we're not going to deny anyone based on that. It's just so we can know a little bit about who you are. Um, the only people we've ever denied are like obvious spam bots who joined Facebook yesterday. So right. <laughs> aside from that, please fill out the questions. We're not going to deny you for anything you say unless you turn out to be a spam bot. Right. And I've gotten really good at spelling bureau as a result of you creating the content you're creating. <laughs> so it <laughs> didn't come naturally to me. Thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> all of my businesses. I apparently pick words that are difficult to spell. <laughs> My studio is called Pinnacle Pro Sound, which is P-I-N-N-A-C-L-E, Pro Sound. So many people, including myself at times, spell Pinnacle P-I-N-N-I-C-L-E, which is not correct. And then same thing with Better Band Bureau. Uh, it's, uh, I think Bureau is a little easier than Pinnacle, but not by much. <laughs> Very cool, man. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This is really, I'm going to go back and I'm glad I get to go back and listen through this while I'm editing it because there's a lot of really good information there. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad you came out to do this. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you guys found it useful. And thank you for inviting me to be on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, last thing is if anybody has questions about any of this, just ask in the group. I'm hmm. in there every day replying to stuff. So if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out or uh, james at thebetterbandbureau.com. Yeah, I will say James is one of, one of the most responsive people on the internet, I'm convinced. <laughs> every, every interaction I've had with you, you responded almost instantly. So sometimes I wonder if you're a bot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely a bot who has the perks of working from home. So I'm pretty much always online unless I'm eating or like outside or something like that right on all right well vadim and ben it's been great so thank you so much for inviting me i really appreciate it thank you yeah thanks man if you're enjoying the podcast take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's work out at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. 
We'll see you next week.